Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We are so happy to introduce Carrie Mayer. She has this absolutely gorgeous book you absolutely must read. It's historical. It's smart. It's the perfect read something to relax, but also feel like a good learning human while you do book. Carrie, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's start at the very beginning. How did you know you wanted to be a writer? I wrote my first unfinished novel in fifth grade. (laughs) So it's been a long time. I wrote another unfinished novel in middle school. I wrote my first completed novel right after college. Never published. It's in my attic along with several other unpublished novels. I like to talk about that actually, because I think for any aspiring writers listening, it's important to know that sometimes it takes a long time. Publishing and the world is full of the overnight success story, but really for most of us, it takes a lot longer. I think my story is more typical than the more popular stories we hear in the media. Yeah, of course. How did you find your agent? My current agent is Kevin Lyon, and she is absolutely wonderful, although she is not my first agent. My very first literary agent left publishing altogether. The very first agent to take a chance on me was named Penn Whaling. She was at the Ann Rittenberg Literary Agency, and she was young and fun and awesome, and she picked up a mystery novel that I had written, and she valiantly tried to sell that. She also valiantly tried to sell a, a young adult novel that I wrote. She did sell my nonfiction writing memoir. This is not a writing manual. And so I will be forever grateful to her for that. But she left publishing altogether to pursue a different kind of career. Wow. What's she in now? I think she was in some sort of marketing, but she's also a hobbyist photographer. And she's like an amazing architectural photographer. Wow. So tell me what inspired the book and how did you pitch it? I've been carrying Sylvia's story around in my heart and mind for most of my adult life. When I was an undergraduate in college, an English major obsessed with the 1920s, I found her memoir, which is called Shakespeare and Company, after her store, in those great bargain bins in front of you know college bookstores. I plucked it out one day, I read the back, and I saw that it was about Paris in the 1920s, and I thought, sold. And I read it, and I was just entranced by the story of her bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, and all the famous writers who went there. And she also published James Joyce's novel, Ulysses. And at the time, I just filed it away under good to know. Fast forward two decades, I've written two historical novels, and I'm thinking about what I might want to write next. And I very quickly honed in on Sylvia Beach and Shakespeare and Company. I'm amazed that it took me so long to figure out that she deserved a novel of her own. But I'm also really glad, actually, that it didn't occur to me as my first historical novel. I think it would have been too daunting to write about this particular cast of characters in a first try at historical fiction. You have all these other beautiful novels set in these rich worlds with strong women at the helm. Did you always know that would be your niche? No, I didn't. I have played around in romance. I've tried mystery. My very first novel that I wrote right out of college was literary fiction. I have a master's of fine arts from Columbia, which is also very much grounded in literary fiction. I've also tried my hand at young adult. 
my first historical novel about Kathleen Kick Kennedy called The Kennedy Debutante, I was able to bring my experience in all of these other genres to bear on her story. Some writers write the same book and revise the same book for a decade. I wrote multiple books over the course of a decade, and like all of them were my apprentice novels. So I feel glad that I had that experience writing across different genres. I'm surprised it took me so long to land in historical fiction. I've always loved history. I love art history as a discipline. The way it was taught at Berkeley, where I went to college, was in order to understand a particular painting, Delacroix leading the people. In order to really understand it, you had to learn about the social and political and cultural moment surrounding the painting. And I just love that. I like putting those pieces together to understand or create a work of art. And so I feel like that's what we do in historical fiction. And I love the research piece as much as I like the writing piece. So could you settle a debate for us? Can authors go hang out in the world of their book? Did you get to take a fabulous trip to Paris and eat all the pastries and just write it off on your taxes? I did. (laughs) I feel so privileged and lucky that I got to do that before the world came to a screeching halt. I went to Paris. I had been to Paris before, but it was a long time ago. And so I went again in the summer of 2019. And not only did I eat all the pastry, I stayed in this neighborhood. The Shakespeare and Company bookstore was originally located and where many of the writers actually lived. And in fact, I stayed at an Airbnb that was in the same building that James Joyce himself lived in with his family in 1921 as he was finishing Ulysses. He borrowed it from this French writer named Valerie Larbeau, who was a very good friend of Sylvia Beach. There are two plaques on the outside of the building, one that says James Joyce lived here while writing Ulysses in 1921, and also that the apartment was owned by Valerie Larbeau, who is a French poet. Nobody knows exactly which apartment it was in the building, but the building is off of a lovely leafy courtyard, just a little bit set back from the road, a cobblestoned driveway. It was just magical. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And I heard you had a serendipitous moment during your trip. When I got to Paris, it was raining, so I wasn't looking around very much, but very quickly the skies cleared and I was tromping around the neighborhood in the morning and I look up and I see another plaque that says, Ernest Hemingway lived just up the street in one of his first Paris apartments. So I was really in it when I was there. It was really terrific. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so happy you got to do that. Could you talk a little bit about the political difference between the US and France at the time of your book? Yeah, this is really interesting and had some resonances with what was happening as I was writing the book in the elections of 2020. So when the book opens in 1917, it's the end of the First World War, which was supposed to make the world safe for democracy and instead just decimated Europe, made the sort of social, cultural, moral world that existed before really just came to a screeching halt. And the the writers and artists that emerge from World War One are really trying to remake the world, and none more so than James Joyce in his writing of Ulysses. Meanwhile, in America, the forces of censorship are on overdrive. There is the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which is led by this man named John Sumner, and they are seizing works of art that they believe could be obscene. And James Joyce's novel Ulysses is one of those pieces of literature that is thought to be maybe obscene. It's being serialized in an avant-garde literary journal 
journal called The Little Review, which is largely disseminated through the mail. So the Vice Squad uses the post office to seize copies of The Little Review that are going out through the mail to determine whether or not it's obscene. So The Little Review is giving multiple warnings. And finally, the editors of The Little Review, who are two other intrepid women, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, they ultimately stand trial in 1921 for publishing this obscene novel called Ulysses. And they are convicted of publishing obscenity. It's so modern. By this time, by 1921, many writers from America and England are starting to expatriate to Paris from their homes because the forces of censorship are just too much for them. Alongside the censorship, there's this profound anti-immigrant sentiment. There's this fear of the anarchist movements and the Marxist movements and the other kind of political unrest that is happening in the immigrant community and growing beyond it. So American writers who want to tell the truth feel that they cannot do that from America. They cannot live authentically in America, but they do feel that they can live authentically in Paris. And that's where some of the great masterpieces of those decades are written in Paris. I thought it was so nice how the women help each other to make this happen. I loved the note saying, oh, he has terrible taste in steak. He wants it completely well done, but it's all right because he likes violence in his fiction. Yeah. So Sylvia Beach really picks up the baton that has to be put down by Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap after that 1921 trial. They have to stop serializing Ulysses at that point because they've been fined for it. And so Sylvia from Paris gets to pick up that baton and publish Ulysses in full book form. First, James Joyce has to finish it, which he does, but then she has to figure out how to smuggle it back into the United States, as I like to say, alongside the illegal liquor because it's this prohibition. So alcohol has been made illegal during this time period. In her own memoir, she calls herself a booklegger as a play on the word bootlegger, which I just love. The details are unbelievable. I was so curious before meeting you. I was like, what's Carrie like? (laughs) You know, like to get to dive into this world and live it. So there's a moment I love. The music on the radio is positively cheerful. The hemlines are more flirtatious. The flavors of the cocktails are more and more outlandish and delicious. Thrilled at the confirmation that she and Adrian had been noticing the very same changes around them, these characters notice the very same things at the same time. It's one of the many special things about their connection. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So Sylvia in 1917, she finds herself in Paris. She's doing some writing of her own, but she's a little bit at loose ends. She's living with her sister, Cyprian, who's an actress and has a very solid career. She's in a recurring weekly movie called Judex. And Sylvia goes to a little bookstore in the left bank called La Maison des Amis de Livre, the house of the friends of books that is owned by a French woman named Adrienne Monnier. And Sylvia falls in love with this bookstore, soon thereafter also falls in love with Adrienne. And she falls in love with this world of books and writers that Adrienne has created. Adrienne opened her store in 1915 in really the thick of the war. She was one of the very first female bookstore owners in all of France. So even though Adrienne is a few years younger than Sylvia, she's really a mentor and an example to Sylvia, shows Sylvia what is possible in a world full of books. And Sylvia initially thinks that maybe she'll open a French bookstore in New York to attract like-minded Francophiles like her in America. But 
As is still true today, 100 years later, the rents are too high. She cannot afford to open a bookstore in New York. So very quickly, she realizes that she could open an English language bookstore in Paris. And part of the inspiration for that was the French writers and intellectuals who were regulars at Adrienne's store really wanted to read more books in English. They were so curious to read more books in the original language. But those books were very hard to come by. And so Sylvia realizes that she can fulfill this need in the French intellectual community. So her original customers are really the customers from Adrienne's store who want to read books in English. But very quickly, the expatriate writers find her store and become really the core of her clientele. And it's so beautifully put. Yeah, the entrepreneurship and the pivoting and it's stuff that Jessica and I do at the Manuscript Academy all the time. But like, how do you create something as two women or create an atmosphere where they do come in the whole idea that this isn't fiction, that they really were creating these conversations in this world and such an integral part of it. What about their spunk stays with you? I mean, you guys are still on the same kind of project today, a hundred years later, that Sylvia and Adrienne were on a hundred years ago. And I think when we think about a hundred years ago, we think of how I'm putting, using air quotes here, backward it must have been. But really, in some ways, it really wasn't. And as we've already talked about, a lot of these issues of censorship and conservative thinking have real resonances with what's happening today. Yes, we've come a long way on many issues. Sylvia campaigned for women's suffrage. At the same time, almost in the same breath that women got the right to vote, we had prohibition. Three steps forward, two steps back. The way we progress is in increments. And so this project of female entrepreneurship that Sylvia and Adrienne were on and really in the vanguard of in book selling and business ownership in general is a path that you two are on today, that I am on today as a woman writer. And they really were cutting that path. I love how the parts about the books feel timeless. The owning a bookstore is much more than selling sentences. It's putting the right sentences into the right hands. True then, true now, probably always has been true as long as we've had books, probably always will be true as long as we have books. I love that. I thought that was just really nicely put. Thank you. Yeah, I got to work in an independent bookstore after college. And so I know from experience just how satisfying it is to work in a bookstore and have a customer come to you and say, I really loved Spending by Mary Gordon. That was something that I used to recommend a lot. What should I read next? And be able to pluck a book off the shelf and say, well, you know, I really loved this one. It has some things in common with the novel that you just mentioned. See if you like it. And when that person would come back again and say, oh, I love the last book you recommend. What's the next one I should read? Those relationships that bookstore people form with the customers, those are real and meaningful relationships. The relationships we form over books are some of the deepest we have in our lives. And think about children and their favorite librarians or their favorite teachers who put books in their hands that literally change their lives. And getting to write a little piece of history that takes place in a bookstore that changed the lives of the people who went there and changed the world for readers and writers from that time forward was really a privilege to get to do. I was obsessed by all of the Parisian writers. As I was going through, I was like, which one would I want to hang out with? <laughs> you know, like it's Gerald or Joyce or did you have a writer that you were like, this is the one I would bring to my last meal? Or if I could have that dinner guest, which one would it be? I, of course, enjoyed getting to write James Joyce. That was mm -hmm. a real privilege to get to do. But I think the most 
fun I had, and maybe partly because they were minor characters, a very young Ernest Hemingway, who Sylvia gets to be friends with. And their relationship was very different because it wasn't fueled by anything romantic. The two of them got to be friends and peers in a way that feels unique for historical fiction. Mm. Hemingway has been the subject of a lot of recent historical fiction that's wonderful. The Paris Wife is one of my absolute hands-down favorite novels ever. But I got to take a different kind of look at Hemingway from the perspective of just like a buddy of his. Later in his life, he becomes notoriously cantankerous about people in his life, except Sylvia. Much later in his life, he writes of her, no one was ever nicer to me. And so that was just really fun to be able to represent in my novel. The other writer that I really had a great time interpreting was Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound, who really does wind up on the wrong side of history in World War II, at this time was, again, a young writer. He was a poet, but he was also really an architect of modernism. He was an editor or a consultant on numerous literary journals. He finds himself in Paris in 1920 and really believes that Paris is the place that literature is going to happen. So he writes to James Joyce. He writes to T.S. Eliot. He writes to all of these other emerging writers and said, come to Paris. This is where it's at. And it's thanks in large part to Ezra Pound that Paris in the 20s happened and unfolded the way it did. Oh, there's so much that you do to create this world. And you do so much with so few words. One line I really liked, possibly because I like carbs, is when the boulangeries opened, she was first in line so she could wake Adrian with a crusty loaf that smelled of yeast and heat. How do you do so much with so little? And can you teach our audience a little bit about how to do that? So I do want to go back to something I said at the beginning of the interview, which is that I have five unpublished novels in my attic. So how do I do it? With a lot of practice. I have an MFA. I have many writer friends that I exchange work with. And so I have learned over time what my own strengths as a writer are and what my weaknesses are. I'm still learning. I'm writing a very different kind of book now, and I'm encountering all kinds of new weaknesses in my writing. But that's all part of the process. And I think if you're going to be a writer and you're committed to it as a lifelong process, you really have to embrace that. And you have to be willing mm. to take feedback and pivot and make changes and learn what works best for the story that you're writing. Sometimes the muse just makes it magical for you. But most days, I like to say it's like laying track. You sit down at your computer and you're like, I do not want to be here but you fulfill your word count for the day and then you go walk your dog. But then you can go back and revise that. That's the other thing. Sometimes the magic happens not in the draft, but in the revision. I was so curious, and I would love to know right now, is your next book historical fiction as well? It's also historical fiction, but it is not biographical fiction. Well, that's what I was wondering. Did you at times feel confined? I would like to go here to this point, but I'm not sure this character would really do this. I feel like writing within someone like Sylvia, and I really nerded out with her. And I, I went and looked at all of her images. She is an amazing character. Once I saw the pictures after I read the book, and then I stopped and I went back and forth. It's such a responsibility. Did that feel daunting? Was it constraining to you as a creative? It never felt constraining. In fact, now that I'm writing something that is not rooted in real people's lives, it's rooted in real history. 
a real historical mm -hmm. moment and some things that happened, but the mm -hmm. characters are entirely made up. I'm finding that is really challenging for me. There's something about the way my brain works that responds quite well, I think, to having the scaffolding of a real life that kind of does allow my imagination to be, I don't want to say more free, but free enough, right? To imagine the intimate moments between Adrienne and Sylvia, the intimate moments of friendship between Sylvia and James Joyce or Ernest Hemingway, to ask myself, what would this have felt like? What would it have looked like? What did that baguette smell like? They're just different kinds of challenges. I know I never felt hemmed in by it. I'd like mm. a baguette now, please. I know. Let's all grab yeah, some nice, warm, crusty baguette. <laughs> But please tell us about, this is not a writing manual. So I published it under a different name, Carrie Majors. It is a writing memoir that I really wrote for my 15-year-old writing self. It's like all the things mm. that I wish I had known when I was in high school and college and even just after. And people would say, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I want to be a writer. And everyone would say, I hope you marry money or I hope you <laughs> write a romance novel because... I've heard there's money in that. What I could not possibly appreciate from the vantage point that I was at and the literature available to me was how long the writing life really is and what a long view you really have to take in order to live your life as a writer. I wrote that book in my late 30s. I hadn't had a novel published. I had numerous novels rejected. I had that book sold on a proposal, so that was exciting. I had some rewards. I had gotten into graduate school. I got an MFA. I had gotten a scholarship to a writing conference. I had gotten a few short stories published. It wasn't like I was writing into a total void, but there was always more no than yes. And I can tell you now from the other side of novel publication, there is still more no than yes in the life of a writer. So, you know, so many of the things that I wrote for my young aspiring writer self and other writers out there in the world like me is still true. It was published 10 years ago. It's still true for me now. And I've had many other adult writers who read that book say that it really helped them too. And I've had people who do other kinds of art, dance or music, read it and say, the same has been true for me in my experience. So that's been a really special thing to get to experience alongside other aspiring artists of various kinds. Can you tell us some of your main tips for writers? Oh, my biggest tip is find your people. This is so important by listening to podcasts like this one, but also start a writing group, join a writing group, take a class. You don't have to go get an MFA, which is a big and often very expensive and time-consuming endeavor. I don't recommend not doing it. It's a great thing to do if you can do it. Now, especially one of the gifts of the pandemic is everything has had to move online. So really terrific writing centers like Grub Street out of Boston and the Gotham Writers Workshop out of New York, they all offer classes online. So you can live in Nebraska and take one of those classes. And not only will you get the feedback from the teacher, you will find other peers in that class who are at the same place that you are, which is really, in the end, more important than the relationship with the teacher. So finding other writers who are writing their first novel and struggling through it and trying to figure out how to balance a day job and a writing life and raising a child and walking their dog and all the things that life throws at you while you're trying to write your first book. Because not only can you exchange work with those peers and get valuable feedback that you can't get any other way, you will find 
a confidant, somebody who will pick you up and dust you off when you have fallen down, when you've received that 50th rejection letter, because you will receive the 50th, that's the overwhelming likelihood, but you want to keep doing it. And so you need a cheering section. So your people will do that for you. And I I also want to just say your people does not always mean people like you. I think it's really important to read and befriend people who are as diverse as the world of writing is. So people from different ages, from different classes, from different races, it's really important to build your writing as large of a writing toolbox as you can. We agree. (laughs) The writing will always be something you do alone, but the friends, the experience, that's exactly what Sylvia gave everyone, right? Like that, just going back to as like a full circle, it might just be talking to your librarian that can give you that. It might be your local bookstore. But it also might be the people that you band along with the journey. And I think only a writer understands how hard it is to be a writer, an agent. I think editors do too. But I feel like it's that idea of how do you move and stay creative? How do you need to nourish yourself to give back to your work? And that's something that's so obvious in your work. You give back to your work. Yeah, I try to write in the first part of the day when my brain is freshest and fully caffeinated. In graduate school, and then again as a parent of a young child, I got very good at writing in sort of two to three hour bursts. And that's still how I write now. I wrote my very first historical novel, The Kennedy Debutante, which was my first published novel. While my daughter was in preschool three or four mornings a week, I would basically drop her off, go home, make a second pot of coffee and be like, I have two and a half hours before I have to get in the car again. Go. And that is how that book got written and revised. And it's funny, a lot of writers that I know, whether they're parents or not, also write in sort of two to three hour bursts. If you're lucky enough to become a contracted writer like I am, a working writer. So the actual writing becomes a small part of your job, right? There's also social media, there is interviews, there's answering emails. So there's a lot of parts of the job that I can do later in the day when I don't need to have my, like I said, my freshest fully caffeinated brain that I really feel like I need to bring to the work itself. Where can we find you online? So I am most active on Instagram. I am at Carrie Mayer Writer, K-E-R-I-M-A-H-E-R-W-R-I-T-E-R. I've never spelled it all the way out before. I'm also on Facebook under the same name, at Carrie Mayer Writer. I'm dipping my toe into TikTok. <laughs> I have um, oh. under the, also under the same name. And on Twitter, I am Carrie Mayer Books, but I'll be honest, I'm not really on Twitter all that much. I've always found Twitter to be a tough medium for me. It's very noisy, but I really like Instagram and you will definitely find me on Instagram. And I have a website, carrymare.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.